Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, rejected by Colorful Royalty, a revolving low end, and a King Arthur inspired fairy tale. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. All right. Good uh, oh, good morning, everybody. This is a first for us. Uh, the, uh, the group of This Is Vinyl Tap uh, hosts, co-hosts, and our wonderful producer are all meeting pre noon for a yeah. early morning podcast. I wish um, there was a, a nice name for pre noon. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, would, what would that be? Morning? Morning. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, so as you can tell from my voice, this, uh, I'm, this is Tony Slagle. I'm hosting this episode today and I'm joined as always by our producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Good morning, Tapsters. And our host, Doug Cooper. Oh, excuse me. You caught me in contemplation. Um, I've been very <laughs> contemplative this week. And while I was contemplating, I thought something that we might want to do is ask our loyal fans to drop what they're doing right now and go straight to our web page, which is www.tappingvinyl.com. www.tappingvinyl.com and send us an album that you think we should review. Uh, go ahead and do that right now. Do you have a great album that we don't know about? Do you have a great album that we should have reviewed a long time ago, but we were too stupid to do it? We want to hear from you. And also, uh, good morning, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thank you, Doug. I think that's great because we do want to we do want to get uh, input from people uh, who, uh, for whatever reason, seem to enjoy what we do and uh, would like us to talk about something. So we'd, we'd appreciate that. We have gotten a few already um, and uh, they've joined the list um, of albums we're going to be talking about. So we thank you guys, all of you guys who have suggested things to us already and encourage you to do more of that. Okay. So tonight we are talking about a band that uh, I, I think you could say, for most people who know about them sort of straddles this weird 
place between progressive rock and um i don't know what you would call it like uh almost new wave or something. yeah it's a new wave progressive rock and like some sort of weird synth pop early 80s synth pop like they encompass yeah. all of that in case you're wondering who that is uh we're talking about roxy music and their final studio lp avalon tonight this um album was a and this is not a surprise to anybody who's listened to this podcast uh, previously <laughs> this is a jm pick and uh I'm going to ask the question we always ask, but I'm going to ask it in the way JM asks it because I think it's appropriate for this. JM, why is Avalon an album worth discussing? Uh, that's a very um, good question. So well, I like it because it's your question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that this album um, is kind of the culmination of Roxy Music's career it i it to me it's got everything that you listen to roxy music for it's got your uh brian ferry warble it's got your uh phil manzera guitar parts it's got the really cool saxophone parts in it it's and uh even though this is their last album um it kind of points the direction that brian ferry was going to go after leaving roxy music and um, so I think it's a, a kind of a, a a good touchstone album for Roxy music and for the type of what you just said, Tony, about this this genre of music. Well, I, really, I, I can't say that I'm a Roxy music fan, but this this type of music that you're talking about, this was the album where I discovered that type of music. I think I remember seeing the, um, the song more than this on um mtv when it came out and just saying man this is the type of music i've been i've been searching for and then that kind of led me going into david bowie and uh you know and of course the person that i will i bring up frequently on this podcast, Brian Eno. I kind of I discovered this album, then I discovered Brian Eno separately, and it wasn't until years later that I realized that Brian Eno was actually a member of Roxy Music in the early days on the first two albums. So well, that's that's important right there, because, ladies and gentlemen, I know we have thousands of people out there who are deeply confused uh, <laughs> by the Brian Eno factor and Jonathan J.M. Rowe. As, <laughs> as all of y'all who have listened to the show know, Jonathan J.M. Rowe would like to be Brian Eno when he grows up <laughs> and he goes out and picks a Roxy Music album without brian eno and, and yeah. not only without brian eno but one that doesn't even remotely sound like anybody who sounds like brian eno is on <laughs> it's been thoroughly well, de but, de but, but yeah. i will say this i will say this about it oddly enough this is just my take and my limited scope of knowledge about stuff it does sound a lot like 
things Brian Eno was producing around this time. So even though yep. he left the band and he has nothing to do with this, it seems like they were both on the same kind of trajectory in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tony, I, I just so. have one correction for what you just said. Uh-huh. You started that sentence with, but uh-huh. I just want to point out, we're talking about um, art rock. We're, we're talking yeah. about avant-garde. So <laughs> we need to say, and yet, well, yeah, I, I, I did. I did want to stress that um, Doug and I, maybe I don't know about Jam. I think I think he's happy to wallow in this. But Doug and I are going to really struggle with not trying to sound super pretentious talking about this. Band <laughs> and yet <laughs> and yet. <laughs> um, but like I was saying, there, this album just introduced a whole new world of music to me. And it was a, it's a genre of music that I you know, have stayed with me and it's just, I've really enjoyed it. It it led me to buy albums like Low by David Bowie um, or Heroes by David Bowie. Led me to buy uh, albums like um, Another Green World by Brian Eno. Uh, This album came before Bowie in your collection? Uh, Yes, it did. And that's kind of surprising. Wow. Yeah, well, (laughs) besides... I think I had uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, but I'm talking about the synthesizer but, Berlin trilogy Bowie. Okay. The, but but this album this album didn't it's encourage you to buy. I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. And yet this album yet. didn't encourage you to buy any of the more modern bands that were sort of playing off of this Roxy music style and mystique. Like case in point, yeah. Duran Duran. Spandell Ballet, or um, <laughs> no. hey, you could laugh, you can laugh, but Spandell uh, Ballet owes a lot to Roxy Music. They sure do. They, I mean, <laughs> even down to the clothes. Did this album inspire you to buy a members-only jacket? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? I think I owned a members only <laughs> jacket when when I bought this album. <laughs> was it was it full of was it did it have different color pastel colors on it? No. Did you roll, was, did you uh, roll the sleeves up? I did roll the sleeves up. but but I just want to say it 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 inspired me to to find a whole new genre of music that I, you know, I've really enjoyed over the years. Um, you know, and it's, and to a lesser extent, it's, I've looked at bands like Ultravox, um, because of it. I even, I, I know this is going to sound kind of odd, but even like New Order. It's funny you mention all those bands, Jam, because I just, just, I'm going to, turn it back to me i'm going to pull a jam and turn it back to me when all of that stuff was becoming popular this is kind of i think this may be very uh telling about where i come from in terms of this album and this kind of music and where you come from 
I was never interested in the soundscapes those bands were were doing. If their if their mm-hmm. vocalist wasn't something that I th- I found captivating, I wouldn't yeah. be interested. So of all of those bands, the one band I always all those new wave bands, the one band I always was attracted to was Yaz. Because of their singer, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, Alison Moyet. She and and it wasn't the music because the music was very synth heavy and it was okay and kind of dance beat. But her vocals are incredible. That's the thing with like New Order and Depeche Mode. Their vocals just leave me cold. Um, yeah. So a lot of, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. A lot of that stuff just does like Depeche Mode. I have absolutely no interest in whatsoever. I can't remember anything they did. Reach out and touch faith. Yeah. Yeah. Your own personal yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Then, personal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and another band I kind of lump into this that I discovered about the same time is Echo and the Bunny Men. Well, that again, like again, a vocalist, yeah. that guy, yeah. um, why can't I think of his name? Ian, Ian, um, McCullough. McCullough. Yeah. Ian McCullough. Yeah. The guy's an amazing vocalist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's just that kind of synth pop with or- cool orchestration. Um, kind of, if there is a genre of music that I gravitate to, it's, it's this. Oh, and think. so it could pop up again. <laughs> uh and it uh it could pop up again it doug is that foreshadowing again. something <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um it will pop up again yes so um uh, as you can pro- anybody can tell that uh you know um and i and i think doug and i are going to try to be respectful of this but we 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 the two of us come from a different point of view than jam when it comes to this particular album um, I will say, I do want to say up front, I knew nothing about this band at all. Um, I mean, I knew who Brian Ferry was. I knew Brian Eno was. I knew the guys who were in the band. Um, I knew their album covers, of course. Uh, but um, I don't understand but, why that's in a course. But what what this listening to this album made me do and doing research was I went back and listened to early Roxy Music albums. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I dig a whole lot of that stuff in a way that I never, I mean, I didn't know it was out there. Those first Mm -hmm. three to four Roxy music albums have, and I don't like all of the stuff on there, but they're, they're really interesting albums. And some of the stuff on there is, uh, is really, really good. Yeah. I I mean, I I agree with that, Tony. There's a lot uh, that's fun about those. And for me, it was, it was nearly impossible to believe that I'm uh, listening to the same band. Well, I, I, I want to comment on that, too, because I think JM would probably agree with me on this. There is a definite linear progression. If you listen to their albums in order, you can see where the yeah. last album is kind of playing off the one previously. And there, yeah. you could see the trajectory to this. This was the inevitable end that they were going mm-hmm. for. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's right. I, I think that you that's exactly right. You can tell at first the synthesizers are kind of with, you know, they're kind of kind of gurgling. 
and there were more just for um, soundscapes. You know, there were just interesting sounds and the processing and everything that. You know, by the time this album comes out, uh, the synthesizers are just kind of the whole bed that the rest of the band's playing. To. Yeah, the, the the band becomes, yeah, it's uh, the soundscape is almost one unit. Vocals, yeah. music, everything on Avalon compared to yeah. the early kind of herky-jerky stuff. I, that's mm-hmm. the wrong term, but you guys know what I mean. Yeah, um, you know, I don't listen to any band that hasn't been uh, covered on Glee. Could y'all help me understand <laughs> what the term soundscape refers to? I would say that a soundscape is... Um, it it's something that informs the the mood of the music it's but it's not necessarily uh musical it's like there's, there's something there that is just trying to make the songs um more interesting you, you hear it would it be they, like a landscape in a movie be, where the action is in front of it yes i guess you could put it that way that's a really good way to put it uh, and, and the really action, I think, I think the action is on top of it is what I would say. So yeah, uh, at least yeah. in music, now you're getting so, graphic. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying that if, if, if you look in terms of music, it's what, what it's the bedrock and, and the, and the distinction or the thing about this album is it's, it's sometimes for me impossible to distinguish between that bedrock and what they're laying on top of it. It all is, it's kind of an all encompassing sound, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sentimentary soundscape. Yes. This music uh, eventually becomes uh, in some in some regard, at least for, Eno, it becomes uh, ambient music. Yeah, it does become close to ambient. It, it, I mean, it it's a co- stepping stone towards so Yeah, for some people. Well, you, there's a couple of instrumentals on here, which I they're short, but you could almost say that they're kind of in that mm-hmm. genre. And you know, that's what Brian Eno is famous for, um, and damn good at. Yeah, right. Know, anyone and, that and, ever has to work in a uh, noisy coffee shop, you'll be thankful for Brian Eno's. <laughs> Yeah. And and that's something I don't think we can stress enough about this band early on and even on this album. This band was immensely influential. Yeah, they were. Even um down to the the fashion at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that gets me to where I actually heard this band for the first time. Um something we haven't talked on about on this show before, but uh when I was a runway model in Milan uh, this was all they played. <laughs> was it? Uh, and yet, <laughs> and yet. <laughs> no. Uh, the but seriously, the 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 early Roxy music you can hear, you can hear new wave in that. You can hear, oh, yeah. You can hear the it the it's sort of a again. This is it's hard to not sound pretentious, but it's this, this pre punk sort of sound. Um, it's there, exactly it, that. 
<laughs> I don't know how, and I've said this before to you guys, I'm going to say it now publicly. I don't know how Brian Ferry didn't sue David Byrne when the talking heads came out. Just like what you, you stole, you stole, you stole my sound, the talking head stuffs. I mean, that early Roxy music is so it's a direct line to the talking oh, yeah. heads. Wish everybody would leave me alone. Yeah. They're always calling on my telephone. When I pick it up, there's no one there. So I walk outside just to take me in. Come on with me. Brian Eno was their producer for i think after their first album he produced everything up until um, you're talking about the talking heads yeah and but but the, it's also responsible doug for if you listen to that early roxy music stuff it's responsible for that that type of singing you don't like in that new wave music that yeah, real yeah. sort of halting <laughs> jerky yeah, yeah. Um, you, you let me tell you a sh- a shorthand way to understand how influential this band is get a guy who's in his 50s and get them to go through the Roxy Music catalog uh, with little inf- information about Roxy Music or knowledge of Roxy Music. And as he listens, he's going to say, these guys are ripping off that band. These guys are ripping off that band. And then he looks at the dates that these albums came out, and they're all uh, before the band. He just accused them of ripping off. So are you describing your and mine experience over the last couple of weeks? <laughs> These guys ripped off everyone that came after them. It's so well, disgraceful. Uh, it, it, uh, I, the one band they did rip off and I don't want to say rip off, but they definitely built upon was the velvet underground. Oh yeah. yeah. And you yeah. can hear you can hear that in that on that first Roxy Music album and the really second can. one to a certain extent. It's mm-hmm. uh you can hear the Velvet Underground all over those albums. And I think yeah. the last time we said and yet a lot was when we were talking about um what's, what's <laughs> John Cale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was uh, another Jonathan, Jonathan J.M. Roper. It, it, yeah. It was a well, yeah. surprise. tell you the amazing thing about that Ladytron song is I was listening to it um, and I'd listened to it a couple of times right in the middle of it. It sounds so much like a Bowie song. It does. Oh, yeah. you, can, <laughs> you can tell and you can tell that they were in they were even influencing him to a certain extent. Oh, yeah. You yeah, know, it's, um, it's um, I feel so ignorant. I, I believe this uh, album has made me feel more ignorant than any of the other deep dives we've done just because this band is so enormously influential and because it is so um, big in England compared to the United States, uh, I was shocked to find they were in the Hall of Fame. Um, well, so. I think I think they fall into that category of bands that they deserve it um, for various reasons. Um, well, I'm but not arguing not, they, they don't deserve it. No, 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 it. I'm, I'm not saying you are. I'm not saying you are. stupid I was. I'm not saying you are arguing that. I'm just saying that I think a lot of people would be surprised by that. But they're one of those of bands Americans. that 
not only do they deserve it for some of the music they produce, but also just because of what they did to uh, the modern music wouldn't sound the same if it, if rock music hadn't been around. First, let, I guess we can start with Brian Ferry. He's kind of the guy that, um, which one's he, the, he's the lead singer and keyboardist, main keyboardist for the band. Um, yeah, we, I think we need to make a distinction, Jam, if you can, between the keyboardist and the person responsible for the synthesizers and what their roles were. Cause I think that's important. Yeah. So, um, throughout their career, Brian Ferry has mainly just been like the piano player. And, uh, if he, if it was like a straight keyboard and not a synthesizer, it was usually played by, um, Brian Ferry. Now that changed with this last album where he played almost all of, I think he played all the keyboards except on one track. Um, but a lot of times they would, they would bring in these synthesizer players. And one of those being Brian Eno, he was a co-founder of the band. Um, he was brought in by Andy McKay, uh, who's the oboist and, um, well, a sax player. Yeah. And Andy McKay actually joined the band because he answered an ad in Melody Maker because they were looking for a keyboardist. And Andy McKay showed up with the oboe and a VC, <laughs> a VCS three synthesizer. Right. And, and that was it. Um, and the reason and, why he, he decided Ferry decided to have him join the band anyway, is because he was excited about having this synth player, as well as somebody who could bring some sort of stack style horns into the band. Cause that's yeah. kind of what, that was kind of his vision is to a certain extent. Yeah. But, and, uh, Eno didn't have a synthesizer, so no. he, but he had uh, done a lot of studio of tr effects, um, and he got hold of a McKay's synthesizer, and so he kind of in instituted, you know, using the synthesizer. He actually put guitars through the synthesizer or the vocals through that synthesizer. This is they had um, what they called patches, and you could put any sound through. Uh, the console of this B BCS3. Well, I was just going to say, we, uh, we've we got a bit of a connection with an album we've talked about before with that synthesizer. You know which one? Uh, uh, Pink Floyd. Yep, Wish You Were Here. Wish You Were that's Here. What, that's yeah. what Waters used for all the sound sounds in uh, Welcome to Machine, all those weird... Yeah. That's all. Yeah. That's that. That's that synthesizer. Yeah, it's a pretty cool. I've actually got an emulator, a VCS3 emulator. Uh, it's a software package, but you could make it sound like all those sounds. Well, uh, and the cool cool. thing about it is, it looks like it looks like a a, a typewriter stood stood on its end. Yeah. Where you just plug in all the like plug in these old school phone lines into it. It's a bizarre yeah. looking, but it's not very big. No, it's not. Lily Tom Lily Thompson had one of those. Lily Tomlin. <laughs> Oh, sorry. That's okay. Yeah, that's what it looks like, though. It looks like one of those things that when she was doing her character, the, the one um, dingy, one yeah. dingy, yeah. one yeah. ringy dingy. <laughs> wow, we brought Lily Tomlin into the Roxy Music episode. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> that's the breadth of this show, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Going back a little bit to uh, Brian Ferry, he grew up in a, I guess, it was a suburb of London in a very working class. Um, 
neighborhood. I mean, he, you know, you see him now and he's always, you know, he's dressed in tuxedos and looks all suave and, um, but he that's comes the way from, it is. Yeah. He, that's he how from, it is. Somebody comes from West Texas and they get to Austin, they start trying to put on airs. Um, <laughs> the, uh, his dad was the guy in charge of the horses in the coal mine. That's right. That's a pretty humble start. Yeah. So, but he did have a, uh, an artistic side and that was pretty much nurtured and, um, by his parents and he, uh, got into art school and then he went to art college. It went to Newcastle art college. Yeah. And there he met, was it, was it Andy McKay? No, he met, um, I don't think he met it. No, he didn't. That's when he started, when he was in art college, that's when he first started uh, playing and singing in bands. When he graduated, his first, anybody know what his first job was? He was a teacher. He taught. Yeah, he poetry. taught, he taught, he, well, he taught, he taught ceramics actually. Oh, ceramic. Yeah. Yeah. He, he taught also- ceramics uh, because he got fired from that job because he was, he was playing, he was spinning records while he was supposed to be teaching the kids. It was an all girls school. Oh. Um, it was, uh, yeah, what was it called? Like, I forget what the name of it was, but it was an all-girls school that um, that he um, taught at. And, they, yeah, they canned him because he was using his time in the classroom <laughs> and spending records for the kids. I, one thing I want to say, though, before he does, this is important. He When he's in college, he is taught by this pop art innovator, a guy named Richard Hamilton. And Richard Hamilton, a lot of people compare that connection to the same connection with the velvet underground and Andy Warhol because Andy Warhol, you know, is also a pop artist. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's an accurate comparison because Warhol didn't influence the velvet underground in the same way that Richard Hamilton influenced Brian Ferry. Warhol was kind of a sponsor. The band was already a band before Warhol joined them. R- Richard Hamilton is part of Brian Ferry's DNA for this band. You know, it, it is it, it, his influence on how, how Brian Ferry thought about, what he was trying to do and incorporate all these disparate elements of pop culture stuff. And that's all because of this guy who taught him in art college. And, and, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if Warhol had the same, I mean, he did impact some of their more visual things, but I don't know in terms of the music, how much he influenced what they were doing, but Graham Simpson, he met Graham Simpson uh, in, in, I think in, around that time in college yeah in college and so he was um he was a bass player and um so they were they started writing songs together and um around this time brian ferry also auditioned for the lead singer of king crimson king crimson yeah greg lake who was their original uh singer left for other more lucrative uh, <laughs> pastors when he joined yeah. Emerson Lake and Palmer. Um, yeah. So yeah, he, uh, he yeah. tried out and, 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 uh, um, they, you know, Fripp and, and, uh, Fripp liked him, but yeah. he didn't, he didn't think his voice really or his image really fit the band. So, uh, you know, he yeah. encouraged him to go do his own thing, which is kind of what, yeah. what started. And he actually, once Roxy music was, was sort of a thing, he, he, uh, Put in a good word for them at EG Records to get them yeah. get them started. Yeah. So, yeah, as, as Tony mentioned earlier, he, they Ferry put in a uh, advertisement for a keyboardist. They got Andy McKay, a saxophonist and oboist, but 
happened to have a BCS3 uh, keyboardist, and McKay knew Brian Eno from uh, college. They went to college together, yeah. Yeah. And um, Eno, I'm going to say this again. I think I've said this before, but he describes himself as a non-musician. So Eno, Eno doesn't, even though he plays <laughs> a ton of different instruments, uh, he just he uh, just describes himself as someone who's, you know, he's more interested in sounds than he is in actual it, instrumentation and melody. That description of him will come into play later on because it's there, yeah. there's a moment where of tension where Ferry says something about a non-musician. <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. Um, find a drummer. I believe his was it Dexter Lloyd who was well, their first their first drummer. Um, yeah, the first drummer is Dexter Lloyd, and their first guitarist was a guy named um, Roger Bunn. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so Bunn left the group right before they made their first album. Then they got, uh, another guy, um, David O. List, who played in the nice with, with Keith Emerson. Emerson. Yeah. Right. All roads are leading. Yeah. I mean, there's a, it's funny, these bands, uh, there's all this interplay with, and this is the early, kind of the early stages of progressive rock in the UK. So you had Crimson, you had um, the nice, this is 70, 71, maybe. Yeah. 71. And, uh, and David O'List was a heck of a guitarist and, um, and Brian Ferry really wanted him uh, really wanted him in the band. The, the it, you probably know this, Jam, but the interesting thing is that um, Phil Manzanera auditioned at the same time as yeah. Olist did, and and they kept him on as a roadie. They offered him a job yeah. as a roadie, and so he was just sort of waiting in the wings for Olist to to screw up, which he did. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Uh, they got so he got in a fight with uh, Paul Thompson. The, yeah, well, we didn't mention Paul Thompson joining the band because he also yeah. answered an ad. And Melody Maker was kind of an interesting thing. You just put an ad in the back of it and get musicians. But he answered a, 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 an ad for a, a that said "Wonderful Drummer Required for an Avant Garde Rock Band." And <laughs> he got he got the gig. He got it. Yeah, he got the gig. So that you pretty much got just about everybody. Um, and so they make their their first album with Eno. Yeah, and and that's where you can really hear. I, I mean, from the get go, you can hear this band's yeah. influence on new wave. Yeah, the, particularly the the hit song uh, "Virginia Plain." That yeah. was actually a single that wasn't recorded for their first album. It was recorded uh -huh. recorded afterwards. And uh, and you're right about the way that band. So I mean, that's part of who this band is: is image. They were they were sound yeah. and they were image, and they uh, they go on top of the pops as well because that song was was a pretty big i think it it broke the top it was yeah, top it 40 the top 10 yeah maybe top 10 anyway uh so but you know so they the, the way this band is described and you can watch it and we'll post the the top of the pops uh um episode show episode uh, that part clip yeah. yeah um they're actually were were disparaged by the host of that show as being all substance or all all flash and no substance yeah. but anyway you got you got Brian Ferry who's dressed as what Ian Hunter would later call Dracula Presley. Um, <laughs> and, 
Ian Hunter from Mock the Hoople, by the way. Yeah. And then you and then you got Eno and like glitter smeared all over his face, and he's got yeah. fur and animal prints on and peacock feathers. And yeah. then Manzanera looks like a Flash Gordon villain with these big giant sunglasses on. <laughs> yeah. And then Andy McKay is in this uh this green lame suit. I mean, they are a sight to behold. Yeah, um really it, it is crazy. Um but you know that was all part of their their thing uh was to be visually arresting as well i mean that's mm-hmm. why their album covers have their their album covers have fashion models on them yeah. in fact uh they got a little bit of flack for uh after their first album they put on like what that model was wearing like a like you would in a vogue magazine on the back of their album cover and people are like what the <laughs> hell what are you doing that for so you know the, the it's kind of this whole package about what they were trying to do musically as well as visually and just incorporating all of this these these elements into what what the rocks yeah. music persona was yeah you know so they get they make their first two albums uh they have uh, virginia plains a big hit um also do lady tron and then uh they have well, a single pajama rama. Well, their their second album, which was called For Your Pleasure, is considered a masterpiece by a lot of people. In fact, uh, <laughs> it depends on whether you want to put a whole lot of uh, you know stock in this guy's opinion. But Morrissey called it the one truly great British album. There's a new sensation, a fabulous creation, a danceable solution. I mean, it's 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 thought, and that's that's Eno's last album with the band, um, because Brian Ferry. This goes back to what you said. uh, Brian Ferry evidently said there's not room for two non musicians in this band. Um, But I think really what the issue was is is Eno was getting a lot of attention in the press because of the way he looked on stage, and he was dynamic when you watch him. He's I mean, he just stands out like a sore thumb. He was odd looking to begin with, and then you throw all this glitter and weird stuff (laughs) on him, Um, you know, and uh, and so they they just couldn't work together anymore. And it's all, I mean, I'm going to say it, it's all because of Brian, Brian Ferry's ego. He couldn't handle having somebody else in the band taking, taking attention away from him. So he, well, made... he, yeah. And Eno originally wasn't even on the stage. He was playing, uh, doing treatments and stuff of their instruments off stage. And oh, that's he, interesting. Yeah. And then he gradually started coming on stage and that's when he started just being as flamboyant as he possibly could. Well, um, and, and, and one thing I wanted to mention real quick about that and about the song of Virginia Plain and, and what what kind of they're doing. And one of the reasons I think why they, they were different in the UK than they were in the US. Think about what bands were like in the US at this mm-hmm. time. Yeah, they were, you know, jeans and T-shirts and just, you know, whatever. Uh and and this stuff is like the distillation. Of, I mean, we all talk about Bowie and Ziggy or whatever, but this was a group of guys embracing that in a way that uh, that uh, nobody else really was. And there was still this weird element of top of the pops that wasn't really part of the American musical subculture anymore. You didn't. I mean, you had yeah. what you had the uh, um, 
King Biscuit thing or whatever. King, he had all King that Biscuit, stuff. Biscuit, flower flower hour. Hour. Yeah, but yeah. that was not that was not single oriented like Top of the Pops nope. was. Yeah, and and so they concerts. Yeah, yeah, so you got. I mean, there's a kind of a different. I think that goes to explain why that early Roxy music stuff wasn't as big over here as it yeah. was in the UK because the, the sensibilities of the UK audiences were just completely different than American audiences. Um, it was it was the days where the Eagles were starting to that country rock that the Linda Ronstadt's and the Eagles and the, you know, Jim Croce's everything was becoming a little bit more acoustic oriented. Right. But, and this is just synthesizers gurgling and making weird sounds. And that just wasn't really up. The other, the other interesting thing about when Erno leaves, there's a lot of people that draw that line in the sand and say, that's when, that's when the band stopped being a band. I don't think that's fair. Eddie Jobson, yeah, it's all you put him in there, and that's who that's who replaced Brian Eno. And it's I, I it's you can nary tell the difference, really. I mean, he he is all over that third that third. Um, yeah. He was with the band, I think, for three albums for Stranded Country Life and Siren. And he's yeah. all over those albums. And I, I I'll be honest with you. I don't miss Eno when I listen to those things. Well, um, you know, it's going to be surprising to sit for me to say this, but I don't miss you know, either, especially on Siren. Siren's one of my favorite records. <laughs> Think I walk out in the rain Called you time time again Well, um, and, and there's another connection I just want to take with Eddie yeah. Jobson. He was in a band called Curved Air. Who Curved else Air, was in a right. band called Curved Air that we talked about previously? Uh, Andy. No, Stuart Summer. Copeland. Stuart, Stuart Copeland. Copeland. Yeah, right. He was the drummer. The drummer for Curved Curved Air. Yeah. They never. They were. They weren't in the band at the same time. Um, no. But they were both in that band. Yeah. A uh, couple of other names that we need to bring up. I think the producer for on the second album ah. was somebody we've mentioned before as well, Chris Thomas who's worked with them on just about every album after this one or after their first album. Uh, I don't think he was on the album. I don't think he was on Avalon, but I know he produced. Well, and country life, which was their fourth album. Yeah. yeah. That's the one that gets them in. They crack the top 40 for the first time in the U S it's yeah. also the album that's got the most, um, how can I say the scantily clad women on the cover of it? <laughs> um, and it was, it was actually in a lot of places in the U S it was sold in a shrink wrap. So you couldn't see the cover, right. which yeah. another connection is where Pink Floyd got the idea to rap. Wish you were here and shrink wrap was because of that Roxy music album cover. They thought yeah. that was cool to not see, you know, to hide that wonderful artwork on the cover of wish you were here behind a shrink wrap. And they did it because of the Roxy music album. Well, yeah. and speaking of Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, Poco Harum, Badfinger, Elton John, Paul McCartney, Pete Townsend, Pulp, The Pretenders, The Sex Pistols, Climax Blues Band, and NXS all had Chris Thomas in common. Yeah. So he was so, a very sought after producer at this, especially on, in England or in Europe this time. So, yeah, they, had, they have a couple of hits. Their next, their fifth album, Siren. Uh, which is actually contained their only top 40 hit in the United States. Do you know who's on the cover of that album? Yep. 
Jerry Hall. Jerry Hall, who is <laughs> <laughs> she's actually on the cover of uh one of the other ones. I can't remember which one. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh so yeah, she's dressed up. Like who is Jerry Hall? Jerry Hall was the would they did they ever actually get married? She was the longtime so. partner and has many of Mick Jagger's children. Yeah. So, and she was Brian Ferry's girlfriend for a long time. She was well. his gar- girlfriend when this, and I'm sorry, I cut you off yeah. about what you were describing what she was dressed like on the cover. Of oh, Siren. yeah. So the cover of Siren, <laughs> she's just dressed like this sea siren. creature. Yeah. Like a siren, <laughs> but it's, it's really interesting. It's one of the more interesting album covers I think ever made, but supposedly it was a, uh, Pretty unpleasant photo shoot for her, is what I've heard. It doesn't look like it was pleasant. It's yeah, a beautiful it album cover. No, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's got some of their most um, atmospheric sounding songs. It's, it's my favorite um, Roxy Music album. Huh. Okay. So here we are. Around this, around the time of Siren and even a little bit before, um, Brian Ferry, it, it's kind of hard to tell when Brian Ferry. Or what's a Roxy Music album and what's a Brian Ferry album? Brian Ferry is uh, becomes enamored with the Great American Songbook, and so he starts putting out um, a lot of covers of old songs. And uh, you know, I've always found Brian Ferry to be a very interesting guy. I don't. There's an interview with him about ten years ago on Fresh Air where he just came out with a new arrangements of all of his songs, like Do the Strand. Uh, Avalon, where he records them like they were made in the 1920s using old microphones or just one microphone and uh, just trying to record them in the old, you know, like Scott Joplin style of with uh, ragtime piano, all sorts of just it's totally different arrangements. And you wouldn't think it would work, but it does sound like he's singing, you know, like uh, who's that guy? Man, me, man, how I love you. Al Jordan, Al, Al, Al Jolson, yeah, Al Jolson, Al Jolson. Yeah, so he sounded like Al Jolson. And it, it's really racist. An inter- yeah, it's <laughs> really an interesting. Uh, album but he's just his voice is so um he's so soft-spoken i mean it's almost you can hardly ever hardly ever hear him he, he, you know he doesn't seem like he's the suave cool guy on the dancing around on uh, top of the pops or in those videos well uh, one thing i want to mention before we get into the album we're talking about tonight is uh how this band once um graham simpson leaves never really has a basis that's a, a yeah. like they're they that's they they roll through basis like spinal tap rolls through drummers um <laughs> you know for and they've different had some, reasons for different reasons yeah. they've had some interesting people i mean they john wetton played bass yeah uh, uh, for them and yeah. uh you know for those of you who don't know who john wetton is he was also a bassist and lead singer for king crimson he was in a band with eddie jobson called um called UK, which was a kind of a prog super group because Alan Holdsworth, who's an amazing guitarist, was in that band as well as Bill Bruford. Um, and he was also, John Wett was also uh, the uh, bass player and lead singer for Asia. Yeah. <laughs> Another quote unquote super group. 
Yeah. I mean, they were a prog super group, but they made pop music. Um, but yeah, so I found that interesting that John Wetton was, uh, played bass for him for a while, but yeah, they've had several basses, Roxy music, never really able to settle on one. Brian Ferry. One thing you got to give him credit for is even though he doesn't really call himself a musician, he knows good musicians. And, um, well, it's it's funny you mention that because I, before he started when, before he started really thinking seriously about music, the, the story goes, the legend goes that he only had one piano lesson in his life, and so he augmented that by ten additional piano lessons before he started the band. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, that's the legend. Yeah, who knows if that's true or not? You know, All you right. guys, you guys ready to talk about Avalon? Yeah. Yes. Let's get into that. So. uh one thing I want to say about this album, just uh, it's, it's, it was really hard for me to shake before we start talking about it. Now I've never done drugs. Well, never <laughs> done hard drugs, yeah. but uh, to quote Tom Petty, it's hard to not listen to this album and not taste the cocaine on the back of your mouth. <laughs> Cause this album has that kind of, as Doug was mentioning earlier, jokingly about members only jacket with your sleeves rolled up it's hard to not listen to this and not see those those early 80s visuals you know from yeah like uh what was that television show uh miami, miami vice. vice you know oh, yeah. that's kind of, uh so yeah again i'm not saying i'm, I'm really not trying to disparage stuff i'm well, just trying to put you in my mindset of listening yeah. to this stuff it, you know um, and everything's if you look at the videos from this you know everything's soft focused and you know sparse well the video for more than this you know it's just that sparse background and, and all this but i also heard there were a lot of drugs being taken man yeah manzanera says that he said their yeah. drugs were all over and, and he said that led to the overall some what sonambulant i guess is yeah. a word i will use yeah. atmosphere yeah. of this album <laughs> and this album certainly is that which yeah uh, yeah, he, and he says that it, sometimes the drugs were really helpful in making the album sound the way they did, but sometimes it, it wasn't so helpful. I don't know anything about uh, the, the type of drugs that we're talking about, but and, and I didn't read this anywhere, but I would think that there were drugs being used during the uh, album cover choosing process. <laughs> Why is that? It's the most preposterous, silly album cover that i can imagine <laughs> well it's based on the title track which was yeah. what, mm-hmm. avalon which is the mist that's the king where arthur, king arthur place. goes yeah right. and where he will return to again someday oh. but i don't remember the part about a peregrine falcon with a little cute hat on and uh, <laughs> a pointy helmet well and the and the the person in the pointy helmet is lucy burley which was of course brian ferry's girlfriend at the time and they ended up getting yeah. married at some point yeah. but yeah uh it's the it's the least sexy album cover of their albums. Well, that's I the think. only one you can't see a the Falcon. Face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, it, what's interesting about the this album is it's you're reduced to basically Brian Ferry, Phil Manzara, and um, Manzanera, yeah. and Andy McKay. That's it, and then they're augmented by thirteen additional musicians to fill out yeah. the sound. Um, yeah. One of who is Andy Newmark on drums? Who do we know what the connection to that is? He played on Pink Floyd's, um, what's that out that? He played on the final cut, but that's not what I'm talking about. An album we've actually talked about, he played drums on. I don't know. Good old boys. Is that right? Good old boys. Another Jonathan J.M. Rowe pick. You should have known that one, Jonathan. Shame on you. I should have known. I know. Bad. 
So uh, before uh, another question I want to ask before we get into this, because this is something we've asked previously on two of my picks. So I'm going to bring it to you guys on this pick. Is this a rock album? Um, that's interesting that you should ask that because I, I find it to be kind of soulful in spots, but I'm not sure that I could, there's, there's no real heavy backbeat or anything on, on most of these songs, you know? So it, um, the guitars are, even though there's some solos and stuff, they're, they're not, they're, they're, they're washy, you know, they, they, for lack of a better term, they're not used so much for, uh, playing chords. They're more used for texture. And um, that's a great word for this album. Cause that, most of these songs are just kind of textures built on top of each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, there's the lyrics are sparse. Um, I'm, I'm sure Doug's going to have some <laughs> comments about the lyrics. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I don't think I could call this. I, I, I would say it's more of an atmospheric album than a, or a, it may, it's 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 an album almost for studying to or or going to sleep. Like it's not an album to to or run to. to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what I would say this album's pretty far from Chuck Berry. Yeah. Yeah. What um what what can you tell us about the producer Jam? Rhett Davies, yeah, he's uh, kind of the go-to guy for a lot of those ambient-sounding albums. He's worked with Brian Eno, worked with um, who else has he worked with? King Crimson, uh, I believe the Talking Heads. Um, so he's just for a while he was he started off as an engineer, and a lot of the stuff you look on the back of your album. If you have any sort of album from the, uh, you know. Late 70s to the mid 80s, and it comes from England and it's got a synthesizer on it. Pretty good chance that Rhett Davies had something to, to do with it. Um, so he was kind of the the hot producer for this style of music. Um, the idea for this album uh came from where Brian Ferry was living at the time. Oh, that's right. It's uh with with his girlfriend, and he was staying in this was it Ireland? Yeah, he was on the coast of Ireland. Yeah, and uh, he by this lake, and it was just he. It reminded him of what he thought Avalon would look like, so that's where he started writing these these lyrics. And supposedly, he had just like we were saying earlier, just had sort of song fragments. He didn't really have whole songs, but he did have lyrics, and um, so the songs would just kind of be recorded and they'd form themselves basically. So it's kind of an interesting way to make a record i would think but well he also he also said that 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 place where he was it was the western coast of ireland also he believes contributed kind of to, to the melancholy nature of the mm-hmm. album in general yeah um yeah. sounds like a lovely place <laughs> <laughs> i bet they get more rain than we do uh well that's not hard that's not hard yeah. these days all right so we're ready to dig in guys Yep. All right. So let's go to song one, side one. More than this. More than this. More than this. Can I, 
before before we talk about it, I just have to say these two words. Hello, 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this song it, it exemplifies the 80s. The synthesizer sounds like those string synthesizers from the... I, I can even picture... I even know the synthesizer they're using. It's a Roland uh, string synthesizer. It's It sounds so 80s. The most surprising thing to me about this album, having gone back and listened to earlier Roxy music, is how much Brian Ferry's vocals changed. Mm-hmm. They are... Because I love his vocals on that early stuff. And yeah. there's some songs on this album that I like them as well. But on this particular song, they're just sort of, there's just this layer over the top of the music. They're just, yeah. They're just so breathy that, um, and there's only like four words in the whole song. Well, yeah, they end early too. And the, yeah. the song plays out for another, yeah. almost another two minutes after the yeah. vocals stop. But I, you know, this is the song that introduced me to Roxy music. This is the, you know, and it's, this is the one that sent me down this rabbit hole that I, um, you know, still exploring. Um, so I've, I've got a really warm place in my heart for this song. I, you know, I still love it when it comes on the radio, I still love listening to it and it may be my favorite Roxy music song, but it's, it's, it's just, it's beautiful. We got to give it that. It's a really, really pretty song. And I love the saxophone in it and the, the guitar solo in it is i think very uh appropriate it's very sparse but i still love it well you know i'm in a very contemplative mood um this i've just been listening to this album and it's just made me very contemplative as i look out over a lake and ponder arthur um (laughs) i i think this song is uh one of those irresistible songs that pops up every now and then it may be from a band you don't like. It may be in a style you don't like. And then it still is uh, irresistible. It's definitely and an earworm. You will yep. be singing it. Yeah, it gets, in your, it gets into your subconscious, definitely. The, um, yeah, I think it's interesting because this is a, a, a chorus and a uh, verse. They interchange. And I think if you listen to it, once uh the opposite of the other in the in the verse it goes it, it a couple of notes and then it shoots up and then it comes back down and levels mm-hmm. off and then of course a couple of notes and then it drops down and levels off i don't know if that's intentional or not but i think that works really really well and mm-hmm. uh i like this song i uh i would have ended it sooner or differently uh i feel like there's a point where it starts meandering a bit and they lose all of this uh good motion they have but i'm I'm being a little picky about that i think that's part of the point of this album not to not so much meandering but just to kind of the songs sort of play out in their own way you know it's there's not really a definite ending they just sort of sort of fade fine but uh I, don't sacrifice the momentum you have. No, I get, I get, I get what you're saying. I was just making a comment about that. And it's very perfect. Just as one non-musician to another non-musician, <laughs> uh, as he calls himself. Yeah. Supposedly, Brian Ferry does not like that song very much. But I, I don't understand that. But he, well, I, I've seen him I, twice, and what he first time he never played it, and the second time he just mentioned, I mean, like just barely played it at all i mean like well that happens a lot when people have a hit that just 
yeah causes them to ignore everything else yeah um i mean i can get that like when i said it was an earworm which it is mm-hmm. you know it's a song that um and as doug said it's accessible but i don't know if it's something that i would seek out all right uh next up is a space between i'm gonna have to let you guys talk about this i don't have anything to say about this song I don't like it as a song itself. It doesn't hold up very well. I'll be honest. There's and I, the lyrics fall off the page. They're, they're pretty just, they're non-existent, aren't they? Yeah. They're, yeah. They're hardly any lyrics at all. Um, the thing about this though, it's, if you listen to it closely, there's a lot of stuff going on on this. There's some, there's a part where the drums actually do a double time, with the percussion, but this whole rest of the song just stays in the, this, the same time signature. And so I didn't really notice that until the, this, this week or the last couple of weeks when I was listening to it um, with a little bit, you know, so it's, uh, it, it's definitely got a groove to it. It's just, yeah. a, and, and look, this is what I'll say about this. I'm not going, I it's, you can't, you can't knock the competency of what's going on on the grooves of, between the grooves on this album. It's just this particular song is something that I just not in. Yeah. Not, I don't get it. it right. I really, really, really don't like this song. And, <laughs> um, but I gotta, I gotta say a couple of things. Number one, uh, jam. Are you aware that this song uses the word relationship? Yes. <laughs> okay. So you're a courageous man to, uh, to know that and to recommend this album uh, <laughs> the the other thing is what jm said there this uh the things that they're doing with the instruments on this song are fascinating mm-hmm. and really cool and the best way i could think of to describe this is if i had a band uh and i wanted i wanted someone to help me make a really cool song i'd say can you guys come and play and do a lot of that cool stuff you did on um, this song, uh, the, the space, space between. between. Uh, but but don't suck. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would like to do this really cool song <laughs> and sound like that without without being a horrible song. <laughs> and also. I, I kept wanting to strike poses while I was listening. Well, you know, if yeah, there's any song you've got to roll your 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 uh, mauve suit coat up, the sleeves on, you know, and drive. It's what I see is like it's that scene in those in those movies. You know, when you guys were talking about the uh, Nielsen and the certain films that you think about when you're listening to Harry Nielsen songs, mm-hmm. I see that early '80s. Like, there's two guys in a convertible driving through San Francisco. They're talking via dashboard light, and they're sli- you know their sleeves are rolled up on their sleeves, and it's just they're they're <laughs> going to a bar to, to to shake someone down or something. I don't know, like forty oh, yeah. the movie Forty Eight Hours, you know, with Nick Nolte and Eddie yeah. Murphy or something like that. I that's a, that's what I see when I hear the song. I see, I see a, a uh, couple of real slick guys, just like you described, walking into a bar that is lighter than it should be. <laughs> and there's a bunch of really stylish women dancing mm-hmm. yep. uh, awkwardly. And- like herky-jerky kind of. 
but and you're not supposed to think it's awkward. You're supposed to think it's high class and sexy. Yeah. And these with, guys walk in and they get statues. <laughs> yeah, they, they they do not get beer. I don't know what they want. It's not Azima. <laughs> and uh, they look like they really belong in that environment. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, a lot of these songs make me feel like I'm in a restaurant and I'm scared to order because I know I won't be able to pronounce the name of the food. <laughs> and when you get it, it'll be a little small dish on a giant plate with lots yeah. of like yeah. intricate pretty, sauces. Uh, uh, sauces yeah. make yeah. it really yeah. cute. Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. so if we end <laughs> You, we insulted your city. Please be aware that we live in a city that now provides all of that, too. It sure does. <laughs> all right. Moving on. The title track, Avalon, track three on side one. Avalon. This was the second single. Yep. Um, and another horrible video. It well, you know, you, you know what? Here's two really interesting things about the video. Number one, it was directed by Ridley Scott. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Wow. And number two, the drummer in it is Steve Goulding, who we've talked about previously because he was Graham Parker's drummer. And he also played drums on Watching the Detective by Elvis Costello. I don't know why yeah. he's the drummer in the in in the video. But yeah, it was huh. it was directed by Ridley Scott. That was during okay. um, that was Blade Runner days. He was it, Blade Runner days. He had already done an Alien. Um, yeah. yeah, I. But I mean, he did music. He did direct music videos. I didn't That's, know that. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so the interesting part about this song is uh, the person they got to sing. Yeah, this vocals is that is it. interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm going to butcher her poor name. Yannick and Entienne, I think is her name. Yeah. And she, and she was, uh, they were recording, she was in this Haitian group and they were recording this, this demo in the studio next to, uh, Roxy music. And they were recording this in Nassau, they're in compass studios in Nassau. And, and what, uh, what Rhett Davis Davis says about this song is that they had recorded a version of it, that they, it just wasn't working. So they actually re-recorded the entire song with a different groove. And when they were mixing the LP, he and Brian Ferry heard her sing and Brian Ferry says it was the most angelic voice he'd ever heard in his life. So they went over and asked if she would sing backup on this. She didn't speak any English. Her, her, yeah. I think her husband or boyfriend was the manager of the band and he had to translate yeah. a, a side note to that was when they put her on the song, the man Manzanera and McKay were pissed because they weren't asked. They weren't even consulted about it. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's Brian Ferry's band. I don't know how angry you can be about, about this, but they were <laughs> yeah. like, hey, he's doing something. We weren't even consulted about it. But obviously the the impact of her vocals on this song oh, yeah. were such that you kind of their anger level leveled off after a while. Yeah. yeah. And uh, if you see Brian Ferry perform live, um, this is almost always a highlight of his shows. He always features a backup singer um, doing it. I mean, it is um, his song, though. But one thing that we haven't talked about is the fact that when you bossa nova, there's no holding. Um, <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. What does so, that mean? Uh, it, does that mean that he's he's at a church dance and they allow bossa nova because they're not close to each other? <laughs> uh, um, 
Are, uh, Doug is commenting on the lyrics just <laughs> so people know. Um, One thing about this uh, much woman communication singer, and emotion. Um, <laughs> this song does not use the word relationship, so that's good. Um, the woman singing on this song, it's it's uh, it's the high point of the song. And they uh, they missed a few opportunities to end that uh, when they should. Um, yeah. So I I, I want to say something, and I think Doug may disagree with you on this. I don't know JML or not because I know we've dun, touched, dun. We touched on it previously. But uh, what intrigues me about this album is it's not that dissimilar to stuff I really like by other people and stuff we've mm-hmm. talked about on this podcast. Uh, you know, uh, um, a Peter Gabriel album. We did, we did, um, us and there's, that's a very atmospheric album. There's a lot of sound textures on that. Um, we talked about, um, but just other things that, uh, Len Waugh has been involved in the U2 album yeah. has a lot of the U2 album. We yeah. talked about I forget what fire has a lot of t- kind of textual sound textures on it. Uh, mm-hmm. even, even the Emmy Lou Harris, to a certain extent, mm-hmm. the the thing that I was trying to figure out what about this stuff didn't grab me like those things, and I think more than anything, it's Brian Ferry's vocals on this are so subdued. You know, Gabriel mm-hmm. G- Gabriel can take something that's just a just a kind of a droney sound and sing over that and make it magical. Yeah, yeah, you know? you're right. Um, and the same thing with Bono. I mean, Bono's voice can do stuff. And and that's not and and the thing that's odd to me is it's not like Brian Ferry can't sing, yeah, um, he can, but he just chose to take this kind of subdued. I'm going to kind of I don't want to call it a drone, but it's it's not much above that. Yeah, he doesn't do much with his. But you're right, he doesn't do much with his vocals. And there's there's stuff that happens, you know, after like the, the his the single that came out that he actually sang at the Live Aid show. Um, was that song slave to to love uh his vocals on that are amazing and he can sing he can belt it out um and, but yeah on this album i don't really know why he just kind of decided to i mean his vocals are almost buried in the in the mix maybe he just didn't like the lyrics <laughs> <laughs> i think i think it is pur- purposeful detachment um, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, it's a, part it, of the effect he's going for. But um, it 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 does to me have a very different impact on my enjoyment of the music compared yeah. to other stuff that's similar to that where the vocalists choose not to go that route. Well, I mean, uh you say choose. I don't believe Bono has detachment in his repertoire. <laughs> I do not think he could do that. And then you, you bring up Gabriel. It's just one of the greatest voices in rock and roll. I, yeah. Anything he. Anyway, we've already gone through that a thousand times on that podcast. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Moving on to song number four, side one, India. That's an instrumental. Yeah, and this has uh, Brian Ferry playing guitar on a guitar synthesizer, um, which he doesn't do very often. Um, you know, I, I like it. <laughs> I like that it's 
it's I like really that it's short. a minute and 44 seconds. <laughs> it's got that. That's funny really. you said that because I, I do think that's really important part of this. <laughs> it's a minute and 44 seconds. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's nice. It's something good, but there's it not is. enough I, um, to go very far. I, it's yeah. funny because I wrote exactly in my notes. I, I know we talk about this sometimes when we hit the same thing. I wrote, it's nice, but very repetitive. <laughs> it is. And it's got that. Uh, those hand claps. I guess that's a drum machine making those hand clap sounds. Uh, I like the bass on it a lot. That's a fretless bass played by Alan Spinner. Don't know much about him. Um, he played. Oh, he was the bass player. That's not a. He plays with ABC. Well, that's not surprising considering yeah. ABC. Uh, ABC stuff isn't very far from this album. No, it's not at all. <laughs> So, all right. Uh, anything else we want to say about India? Nope. All right. We'll move we on to the. We don't get many uh, listens from there. That's true. Um, all right. So, moving on to the final song on side one while my heart is still beating. This is not my favorite song on the album. Uh, I think it's just sort of boring. Um, I, go ahead. This is the point where all this stuff starts to sound the same to me. I agree with you there. Um, it, it's kind of it's a it's going to show you what side two is like. <laughs> well, Brian Ferry sounds bored on this song. Yeah, and you can tell it was co-written by the sax player. <laughs> because well, a- it has um, what I think could qualify as classic yacht rock saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time the term yacht rock has ever been used on our yeah, podcast, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> It will be the last. That's not a genre we get uh, close to very often. Yeah. Well, no yeah. ambrosia for us. Um, yeah. Everything about again, it's it's the bedrock's kind of cool the the drums are are pretty cool the the thing about um Andy McKay's playing on this whole album I, I think it's everything is breathy on this album right i mean yeah. even the sax player so that's is, a good that's a good good description yeah and it, you know he can belt it out and he can make it sound like a stax recording when he wants to but, but uh, they yeah. are a million miles away from that yeah on their intent on this album yeah exactly so i don't know i mean it's not the the strongest track on the on the album it's got some interesting parts um but yeah i'll tell you my head's uh on peter gabriel right now um i think peter gabriel could make this interesting song wow i never Um, thought about that yeah well it's yeah because like i said fairy either sounds like he's bored or he's trying to really seduce somebody like he's over yeah. trying to seduce somebody and it's just it just i don't know it's just like i look think into my eyes. i think he's talking about being he's talking about being in a dream i think he's trying to get the uh, music to match that idea huh. yeah yeah but, <sighs> all, right. all right well we flippy over and go to side two. First song on side two the main thing Something, the main 
this is one of my favorite songs that Roxy Music has ever done. I, I love it. Um, it has that, I love that cool uh, percolating synth. The uh, Joe Walsh synth? Yeah, the Joe it's Walsh. Got that life's been good. It's got that life's yeah. been good synthesizer in it. I mean, I'm it glad, is. It's I'm that's... glad you said that because I've been trying to, I've been going through my memory banks trying to place that sound. <laughs> and that's what it is. Am I wrong? Nope, you're oh, not it's, wrong. It's, it's life's been good, man. Um, but I, it's a song that it, I'm going to use this term. The whole bass playing on this album is is in the pocket, and this song is <laughs> is the it is right in the pocket. It, it hits my sweet spot. I love all those cascading low end stuff that's going on in the background. Um, I mean, it's a very textured song. Uh, I think. It, it, I think this is one of the best recorded albums I've ever heard. And I've, well, I'm not alone in that. Um, I, I, I think you're part of your, so what I've gathered from you over the life of this podcast is you, you really, and that's not, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but you're really like, that's an important thing to you is what yeah. the album sounds like and how it's yeah. produced and all this. And so it does not surprise me at all that you listen to this and find immense joy out of all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit technical joy, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's well, I mean this fits in with your role on the show. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the whole song just sounds amazing to me. Uh, the 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 cr- every and this goes for almost every song on the album. The the you can hear every instrument and it it's it's a you know and that goes to Rhett Davies. He's an amazing engineer as well. Yeah, the the, the synth line and the and I really like the uh co-vocals on this i'm not sure who's doing that. i guess that's fun fonzie thornton um, hey. Hey. <laughs> yeah it is fonzie thornton um i just get another one that has kind of a dreamy quality to it uh, again we're talking about really really interesting sounds um we, we've got lyrics that seem like their only purpose is to be sung um I don't know right. if he's trying to communicate with them, uh, but yeah. I can I can see somebody like JM listening to these drums and uh, synthesizers and guitars and trying to pull them all apart. And, you know, JM's like a kid that takes something apart to find out how it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, and enjoys that more than using the object for what it's really for. Um <laughs> That may be what's going on here. I think that's right. Do they use symbols in this album? (laughs) That's a Gabriel thing. That's what made me think of it. (laughs) Yeah. I I started realizing that that's pretty similar. Yeah. I I bet there isn't any. I I can't think of a. Well, is that. uh, I know he's not on this album or it has anything to do with it. Isn't that an Eno thing too? To take the symbols off of stuff? Yeah. Eno really doesn't like trap sets so much that's why i think it's it's fascinating that this band that those two guys broke it off so early yet have yeah. a very similar trajectory and where they ended mm-hmm. up yeah maybe that's very why similar. <laughs> it's, it's easier to get along with someone that uh you don't even speak the same language yeah yeah that's my wife about that um <laughs> i'm joking all right song two on side two take a chance with me by 
far my favorite song on this album. It's one of my favorites as well. Um, I love how it the intro just it's got that eerie kind of sound and you know the slow it's got slow percussion. Um well it's it's the first song that Fairy sings on in a way yeah. that doesn't sound like the other stuff. It's upbeat. It's got, dare I say, some jangly guitars on it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's this is this is a good song. I like this song. Yeah. The bridge is really cool, where the guitar and the key or keyboards are kind of playing off each other. Yeah, I, yeah. I I like this song a lot. This is a song I would listen to mm-hmm. frequently. Mm-hmm. I do. This comes it. in number two for Doug Cooper, and I'm going to repeat something that JM already said, just because I think. I need to say it, and it's it probably is more important if I say it. Um, <laughs> the opening is a masterpiece. Yeah, I I would be happy with ten minutes of what they're doing at the beginning of this song. Yeah. And I yep. think what uh, I love when the opening stops and the song yeah. starts. It's yeah. that's done perfectly. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. And yeah. I think uh, Fairy is expressing emotion on this song, mm-hmm. and yeah, well, that's that a makes... first. That's a first for the album. I think you're right. Yep, that's, I agree. We find out if you cut him, blood comes out, and not wires. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's also the start of. I will say this, just going into it, I dig the second side much more than I dig the first side of this album. It's easy for me to talk about this album as two sides because to me, side two sounds much more like a cohesive side than side one. Side one just seems a little too out. I mean, it's just sounds a little bit more like they're just trying to throw something on the wall and see what sticks. But this one, it seems like I just feel like his vocals are better on side two on the songs that he Mm -hmm. sings. It's the music's a little bit more upbeat. Um, Yeah. It's just, yeah. I don't know. And it's got more of the things that I'm attracted to. It's a little less of, I think, what they were going for. I think this song, I think Take a Chance With Me, stands out as, uh, you know, off of this album from what they were with the rest of the stuff in terms of the mm-hmm. atmosphere of it. Yeah. You know, this is a love song. This is a pop song. Mm-hmm. And if I'll tell you how to tell if a song is a pop song. Give it to the monkeys. Can the monkeys do it? Ah, <laughs> and on this song, the monkeys could we do listen it. to it. I'm going to do imagine that. the monkeys doing it. It would ah. work perfectly. You wouldn't um, have the layers and all that. You'd have the wrecking crew playing little uh, attractive um, hooks behind it. But this song is uh, has a simple, uh, straightforward lyrics of a love song and a neat, uh, happy uh, uh, tune to go with it. And the chorus whatever he's doing with the synthesizers in the course, yeah. I think has been copied a million times yeah. because that yeah. sounds so familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Can I just say, Doug, how fascinating it is that you brought up the monkeys and that, that particular voice that in that way, I've never thought about that, but I have routinely thought about a song and go, I wonder if the, how this would sound if the monkey sang it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were the, they were the masters of, pop music and yeah. uh, if you could transfer a song to them um i'll give you an example bulbs by van morrison yeah mm-hmm. you can't transfer that to the monkeys <laughs> <laughs> it's a great song 
but uh yeah that's just just my way of that's kind of like the kitchen table test where if you sat down with the guitar at the kitchen table would people like this song the the way it is mm. um and this this passes that test and it passes the monkey's test yeah yeah interesting and then it interesting. gets really serious at the end and kind of loses some of its focus yeah it gets a little dark at the end with some weird mm. guitar noises mm-hmm. I'll, I'll agree with yeah i've got that in my notes too but it is my second favorite on the album and i i can actually like tony see myself needing to hear this yeah mm-hmm. um Okay, well, good. Let's move on to the second song, or the third song on the second side, To Turn You On. This is another one I really, really like. Um, This one has Paul Carrick on piano. So the piano sounds a little different. It's more like he's on the next song too, right? No, I think that's the only one he sings on, plays on. Oh, uh, I thought he was on True to Life. No. Okay. Um. So he, uh, yeah. So it. I love the descending chord progression on this. It's, um, you know, it, it's another another one that I really another song on this I really like. Uh. It, and then if you listen, this is one of the more sophisticated songs on the album, because if you listen when the when the guitar solo comes in, there is some weird stuff going on with the uh, with the chords. They are playing around with some, the chords. And um, it's it's really another one to me that's just very interesting to, to pull apart and and listen to the individual parts done to it. it. It's. It's another song where Brian Ferry's vocals sound like vocals to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and it's it's the second song on this album where I'm like, you know what? I, I, I kind of dig this, mm-hmm. you know, after the last one. So, again, that's why I think the second side stands out to me, because you got two songs in a row where I'm like, all right, I, I'm starting to I'm starting to understand this a little bit. It is the most dancing on the patio with your uh, shirt unbuttoned really, really far down. <laughs> <laughs> and you and this girl are looking into each other's eyes and both of you have sweat on your face and the background's just a blur of lights and you're about to go to her apartment and then there's going to be a scene change is uh is that a good thing or a bad thing doug mm, that's just an observation all, all observations do not provide value judgments okay um, jm's right about all the interesting noises going on here but you know, it's, it's it's a good song another another highlight on the album i think i i can see some uh members jacket wearing guy using this as his uh <laughs> let's listen to a little music and sit on the couch mm-hmm. so, <laughs> <laughs> back before the days of netflix <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> moving on to song number four on side two true to life but here's another song with that percolating synth only this time it's on on the high end um uh you know this to me when i heard this one of my favorite brian ferry songs is slave to love um, this sounds like the precursor to Sw- Slave to Love to me. Like this, he 
he must have written these at about the, the same time. Um, the, the drums on this are so, so good. Um, they're really, really tight. Um, the, they're right in there with the percussion player. Um, and I think this guy, the, the bass player is this guy named Neil Jason. And I really just, uh, I think he nails the bass parts on this. So it's just, a, it's a, it's a tight sound that I really like. Um, and it's just got a, I think a pretty cool groove to it. It's not one of my favorite songs on the album, but it's still, you know, I, I've appreciated it more this the last couple of weeks, uh, listening to it than I have in the past. You know, I just noticed something, uh, this is probably obvious to all of our loyal followers, but the only time I hear JM compliment the bass player is on songs where I can't hear the bass. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is. He does love the pocket. I love the pocket. When I you mean, got that's that one. That's drum. a cargo pocket. <laughs> uh, that is brilliant. A cargo pocket. Cargo pocket. That's funny. The voices on it. Uh, well, also, what I mean, there's a lot going on on this song. The voices on it, I think, are beautiful. Um, the, the way that, you know, those ah vocals in the background. Um, I like this song. Again, it's, a, you know, it's another. I like the second side better. And this yeah. song fits into that, my opinion of that. Do you know the game? Agitation, agitated Xena nightly. Yeah, I don't know what that means. So, um, if you're deep and spiritual, but not religious, um, we need help with that, uh, interpretation. I think, see, isn't that, that's not the, uh, that's not the guy Scientologists follow. Is it? <laughs> oh, you mean the space guy? Uh, yeah. Zeno or whatever. Yeah, I, think I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a type, I think it's a type of, I think it's a type of light. I xenon, looked it up like a like a neon light, but it's a different gas. I looked it up and I don't remember what I what I found. Um, well, that's helpful. I know. Um, I'm sorry. Um, it is a yeah. It's a it's a gas xenon. So I think it's a type of uh, light. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say that xenon uh, is what higher class, uh, more sophisticated bars use instead of neon. And maybe that's what makes it so so bright when you walk in. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes it more sophisticated. Okay, final song on the album, Terra, an instrumental. Yeah, it's another short instrumental. Um, and I, this was written by or co-written by uh, Andy McKay. So, you know, the sax is prominent in it. I'm just wondering if this was something that Andy McKay was just playing and Brian Ferry said, Hey, let me put some synthesizer chords behind it. Or and maybe it, it's the opposite. Or maybe, yeah. Maybe it, it was the down the synthesizer and we got we, the, uh, yeah, the sax going up and down on it. So we yeah. talk, we talk a lot about, how a side ends or how an album ends. And I, this feels to me like the album just ends on a sigh. And I, and, and that may be intentional because yeah. the way the album they're going for, yeah, it's but. kind of an album full of size. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, and it's got the C sounds at the end, you know, the seashore sounds at the end. Yeah. Um, I which, think we're watching Arthur leave 
uh, oh, you're, you're, with you're the lady re- of the you're lake. You're reading way too much into this. <laughs> uh, he's going into the mist. Oh my goodness! On his way to Avalon. <laughs> Holy <Yeah>. cow! <laughs> okay, so that is uh, our look, our deep dive into Avalon by Roxy Music Jam Pick. Um, we now go to the part in the podcast where we ask our guys that we've been talking to all night what their rating of the album is and we of course always give two ratings one is a critics rating of just kind of the the competency of the album um outside of what our feelings are and whether or not we listen to it which is a second rating so i'm going to go to doug first doug all right uh critically i feel a little incompetent uh rating this because uh, I, I feel like I really need to have an idea of all the innovations on this album and all the things that didn't exist before this album that sound familiar to me because I've heard of all of their influences. But I, I think I'm going to go, go for a, uh, a four or five. Uh, I, the, the, uh, the production is exceptional. The uh, players are as far as i can tell they're perfect and um there's clever songwriting in here and when i say clever songwriting i mean clever tunes um the (laughs) the lyrics uh i wish they were in a different language uh i would appreciate the album more if i didn't know what was being said Uh, but i'm i'm gonna go four or five with this and with full disclosure that i don't think i'm I think I'm out of my area. Uh, personally, I'm going to go uh, three, eight, just because I don't have a mood for this album. Uh, there's, there's not going to be this time when I'm driving down the road thinking, what am I in the mood for? And this is going to pop up because I don't have this mood that he's, he's providing us with. And, uh, that's that's not his fault. This is he's trying to communicate something that I'm not receptive to. That's the best way I can say it. And I'm, I'm dinging it for the lyrics because uh, I put more weight on that. I think than most most people. OK, well, I'm going to go to jam last. So I'll give you my take on it. I, I think I agree with you, Doug, on the critical pick four or five. I mean, I've said this before in previous podcasts. This this feels like it accomplished everything they were trying to do with this album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, it, it is not it is, you know, again, I agree with you. I'm a little out of my element in terms of understanding all of that. But it was influential of a. I mean, you can't not hear the influence this album had on other bands. Yeah. Right. Um, and and it's it's, you know. It produced it's pristine the production mm-hmm. on it so i think four or five sounds right about that i personally i'm going to give it a two i i can't <laughs> and, and uh, let me let me just say this have we ever been to two before yeah i think i gave little feet less than that um <laughs> I, and i want i want to say this it's not I, I and it's not fair because i went back and listened to roxy music's earlier stuff that i didn't know anything about and I was, and I, and I can't help personally just comparing it to that. Mm-hmm. Um, if I want to listen to Roxy Music, this is the last album I'm going to put on. I'm going to put on one of their first three albums and mm-hmm. listen to those. And I will listen to those again. But um, 
So I'm just being honest here. I, I'm not knocking the technical aspect of it or what they're doing. And for people who like this stuff, it's exactly, it fits that, it fills that, that, that void. But I, I'm not, this is not anything I'm going to listen to again, with the exception of maybe one song. Um, so I just got to be honest and say it too. Yeah. Okay. Jam. All right. Um, I'm going to go with my critic rating and it's going to be the same as y'all. It's a four or five. I think this album accomplished everything. Like you said, Tony, everything it set out to accomplish. Um, I would ding it for the lyrics um, and some of Brian Ferry's vocals, but everything else about it, I think is just the, the plane is amazing. The, the, the way it sounds is amazing. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I, I, there's nothing really that I could ding it on other than those two things. Uh, I think every song has is interesting in some way. Um, and I could listen to this album over and over again, which brings me to um, my personal rating. And I'm going to say a couple of things here first. I bought this album on cassette um, fairly soon after it came out. And at some point I lost it. And I never went back and, and tried to uh, replace it. Um, but a few, it seemed like I, <laughs> start, I dated uh, a couple of women in the, uh, in the early 90s that had this CD or had it as a CD. And uh, so I was kind of reintroduced to it through that. And I started listening to it, you know, uh, whenever I'd, we'd go on road trips or I'd be at their house or, or whatever. And I just started really starting to like it again. The thing that I think happened was this was, like I said earlier, this was the album that introduced me to this whole new world of, of music. And I think that I got away from that, uh, you, from the original seed that started this. I went down the David Bowie route. I went down the Brian Eno route. I went down the echo and the bunny men route. I just started going in a, in a, uh, looking for and the early albums, you know, Roxy Music Siren, um, still one of my favorite albums, like I was mentioning. So when I was I was debating which Roxy Music album I wanted to uh, to highlight, and again, I chose this one because I think it's the most accessible, and I think it's one that it's also got almost everybody knows more than this. So I just I think it's a very good introduction to this world of music. Um, so for that, I'm, I'm going to have to say, I'm going to give it a four or five as well. Again, personally, there's some stuff about it that I, I do think it sounds really of the eighties, but it's also very influential. So I, I can, I can put it in that context. Um, but I just, the, the more I listen to it, the more I really start to appreciate it. And this is the hardest that I've ever listened to this album. So I'm going to give it a four or five. The playing is incredible. I, I love the whole textures. This is right up my alley um, of, of an, for an album. I just, and I love the use of the synthesizers on it. Um, but it, it's, so I'm going to give it a four or five. Well, thank you, Jam. Um, appreciate that. One, one thing I want to, I just want to wrap things up on that I meant to talk about earlier, but I, I find this fundamentally fascinating. So I've got in my hand, their list of albums and where they charted in the UK versus the US. Mm. And it's, it's remar remarkable to me, the disconnect between those two things. I don't think we talked about that. We talked about it a bit on the queen 
episode. But the Queen episode, that didn't start happening till later in their career where there was this kind of huge gulf between the UK and the US. But so their first album, Roxy Music, hits number 10 in the UK, doesn't chart in the US. Their second album hits number four, hits 193 in the US. Their third album hits the top, tops the charts in the UK, 186 in the US. <laughs> Country Life hits number three. That's the one that gets the closest. It breaks a top 40 in the U.S. and hits 37. Siren fourth, or hits, it's a fourth, uh, number four in the U.K., and it's 50 in the U.S. Um, Manifesto, I take that back. Manifesto hits seven in the U.K., 23 in the U.S. Flesh and Blood, one, 35. And then this was a top, it was top the, char- uh, top the charts Avalon did in the UK and hit number 53 in the US. So it's just weird to me that, yeah. that that there's that huge gulf between what the UK thought about this band. And, and I took all the European countries out of this. They're the same way. This, this yeah. band was big in the U- in Europe. Um, yeah. But in the US, they just never seemed to, whereas bands that they influenced were, hu- Duran Duran yeah. was huge. Yeah. Huge in yeah. the U.S. Um, so I, I just find even, that yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Duran Duran, even uh, what's his name? One of the Taylors uh, created a tribute, made a tribute album for them because um, he's obviously a, a huge fan and, and very in, influenced by him. And they inducted him into the Hall of Fame. Also. That's right. They did. Oh, is that right? Wow. Yep. All right, guys. So uh, that's uh, I think this was a pretty interesting conversation we had um, mm-hmm. here. Uh, yeah. I think it it, it was. Uh, I I appreciate JM. I appreciate you introducing me at least to Roxy Music because I was not, this was not a band I would have. And while I'm not the biggest fan of this album, I am happy to know that there's that there other stuff is out there. So thank well, you. Good. For that. I'm glad. You bet. I I agree with that. I am unhappy to find out what a gaping hole I had in my knowledge. Yeah, me too. But that, that listen, this podcast has made that abundantly clear, clear to me that there's a whole slew of stuff. I don't know. about. <laughs> it's, but, uh, it's good for developing humility. It is. Okay. So this is the point where we talk about a um, recommendation and uh, I do have one for the night for tonight and it's connected to this band. So in the, um, before Phil Manzanera joined Roxy music, he was in a band called quiet sun and they were a a prog fusion band and uh, they didn't do much of anything, but in 75, he got some studio time to record his first solo album. And he got the guys from quiet sun together to actually record a studio album of their previously composed stuff. And that was released is called mainstream. And it was released around that time. And it was a pretty big uh, success, at least in, in the UK new musical express called it was the album of the month. And it became, I think Island records fifth biggest selling album at the time. Uh, Brian Eno is on it. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny. Brian Eno is listed as being responsible for synthesizer treatments and oblique strategies. Um, so, (laughs) but, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not going to be every, to everyone's taste, but I think it will be interesting to people who like Roxy music. It's much proggier than the album we talked about tonight. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there's some, some really, um, interesting, um, songs on it. Um, in particular, I like the song Trumpets with Motherhood. Uh, 
there's another song called um mummy was an asteroid daddy was a small non-stick uh non-stick kitchen utensil that one's also <laughs> pretty good too So uh, like a worn out theme though. It is. <laughs> anyway, uh, g- give it a listen. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, if you like progressive rock, this is more on kind of the more kind of jazz fusion end of that spectrum, but it's definitely worth checking out. So quiet sun mainstream. I will say this, they kept, they came from the Canterbury uh, scene, which gave us soft machine caravan gong and Hatfield of the North. So if you like those progressive rock bands, you'll, you'll probably like these guys as well. And oh, Easter and, uh, candy, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Not Cadbury, Red- Canterbury. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh they, uh, Canterbury gave us uh, the Anglican Church. Wait. Um, JM, we just what? got mail. Oh. Oh, we did. Shall I? Shall I read the mail we got, guys? Yes, let's let's do our. It's a new segment we've got called Viewer Mail or Listener Mail. <laughs> Viewer, I like your mail. <laughs> so we we received a really nice email from a gentleman by the name of Kirk Ketchum uh, about our little Steven podcast. Hopefully, uh, most of you have listened to that. Um, anyway, Kirk Kirk says three Texans make a two-hour deep dive into Men Without Women, an album I thought only I loved. It's an understatement to say you made my day and to tie in Southside's live version and even reference Nick Lowe. How are we not best friends? Thank you so much. I can't wait to listen to your episode on the greatest album ever, Hearts of Stone. Thank you for the intelligent conversation and letting me know I'm not alone in the universe. And then he makes a recommendation. How about Mink DeVille? So Ah, I wouldn't mind. That's a great idea. We do like the recommendations, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, Anybody who can listen to us for two hours is our best friend. <laughs> I think that was the longest we ever had, and it is our intention for that not to happen again. So, yes, thank you for your patience, but we we do think our sweet spot's a little bit shorter than that. <laughs> so that's it for our look at Avalon by Roxy Music, their last album. Be sure and go to our website www.tappingvinyl.com. You can find links to all our past episodes up there and you'll find all sorts of interesting stuff uh, related to the bands and albums that we've talked about. You can also leave us a comment up there and let us know what album you would like for us to review in the uh, future, just like our best friend, Kurt Ketchum did. And you can look us up on our Facebook group page, Tapping Vinyl. And we're on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. Next week, we'll be looking at an album by a popular group in the early 70s, the mid-70s, Pure Prairie League, and their hit album, Bustin' Out. Hey, me, what you want to do? For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, 
and Bossa Nova, there's no holding. Which way we should turn together or alone. When I was in Stockholm, one one that night, explains was, a lot. <laughs> I was I was having a a guy that I was uh, working with over there. We went out to go have a drink, and I had always heard about Roxy Music, their uh, network debut, their European debut on television was on an ABBA show, and. I'd, I'd always heard about that and I'd always wanted to see it because it's supposed to have Eno all decked out in his feather boas and, and looking all goofy. And so, and I just heard that the whole band was just dressed in outlandish costumes. So I'm sitting in this bar and I'm looking up, and this is the days before YouTube. You could, you could see that it's easy to find now, but back then I was sitting in this bar and the TV was on and they were showing a rerun of that ABBA special with proxy music on it and i was just transfixed i said i, I could not i told the guy i gotta i gotta go watch this and so just lo and behold this whole the thing that i've been wanting to see for all these years shows up in a bar in stockholm sweden well and i can't let that go by without mentioning uh something about sweden um <laughs> i just want to say that we love our fans in sweden <laughs> and, uh, we, well, we, well, Doug, you know, if you have you, you, are you feeling remorseful for something you said about Sweden in the past? Uh, I had COVID, uh, <laughs> it was the Omega virus variant, and uh, it causes uh, people to say things they don't mean. <laughs> and I'm over that now. I'd like to point out that uh, Sweden is number four last yeah. of, of the last five episodes of people providing listeners for our podcast. So United States, Canada, United Kingdom, Sweden. We, and I would, I would like to thank every one of those people for, for learning English so that they could listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. And they're, and we're routinely in the, in their top, you know, top uh, podcast for music commentary. Now, you know, I'm yeah, just, it is. Maybe we should yeah. recommend, um, What's that great uh, Arthur movie? Um, Excalibur. Yes. What a great movie. It was, but you know what? It was made around the same time as this album came out. Maybe well, we should a lot of the trappings that. are the same. Yeah. Um, if you could uh, relieve it of some of its trappings, it would be. I, well, it's Merlin, got, Merlin needs to change his uh, outfit and his. Well, and I think I think it's also you, know, you talk about that soft focus video. I think there's lots of soft focus. There is. And uh, that maybe I don't I don't know if that movie's easy to find anymore. I watched it not too long ago. Okay. Well, I, I take it back. Convinced that I would find out that I didn't like it, and that, but I, I, I enjoyed it more. I think the last time I saw it, huh? It I doesn't. Should, yeah. It doesn't try to fall into any predictable uh, pattern that you would expect. Yeah, nobody's perfect. <sighs> okay, there's our all right. Nice outtake. <laughs>